Hello, this is Levi Dugan, uh, planting pastor of Cayley Community, a United Methodist expression of faith, a new church plant in the Oklahoma Conference of the United Methodist Church. And today in our second episode, we're going to discuss something that we talked about in the last episode and flesh it out a little more. If you'll recall, in the last episode, we talked about church planters as farmers who tend to good soil, and one of the elements of good soil is good theology. And so today we want to talk about this from a Wesleyan or a Methodist perspective. And maybe you're not that familiar with Wesleyan theology or Methodism, and that's okay. Um, although it's not okay on one level because uh, we really suck as Methodists in uh, teaching what we believe. <laughs> we um, we actually have been really terrible about it. And it's why in this current age in 2023, we're going through a, a bit of a splintering in the United Methodist Church. Our churches are dividing and and we say we're dividing over issues of homosexuality and gender, but that's not really true. If you really scratch underneath all of that, we're really dividing over who we are, how we read our Bibles, uh, what we believe Wesleyan theology really is. And... I think it's interesting to start in this conversation by just explaining how I became a Methodist and uh, why I think we're so terrible at this. Um, I actually was part of what we call the Young, Restless, and Reformed movement. Um, this was a movement that really impacted Gen Xers and Millennials, and it was basically the end of the 20th century and then the early 2000s where there was this thing we call the Neo-Calvinist movement. And I'm not going to get into all the details of this. It's nerdy and kind of boring, but it was a really exciting time for Jesus lovers because basically the neo-Calvinist movement was really good at utilizing uh, this new thing called the internet to reach people for Jesus. I mean, they figured it out and they were passionate about it and they did it well. They did it better than anyone else. And you had people like uh, John Piper and John MacArthur who uh, maybe had been recording tapes and handing them out and uh, selling them in catalogs, but they had suddenly put all of their sermons out on, on their websites, uh, often for free or for a very low price. And then when smartphones came out, they started pushing it out into the podcast format through, you know, Apple's um, music platform. So you could, you know, buy a sermon for a dollar twenty nine or or buy all of the sermons like an audiobook for fifteen bucks or something like that. So they're really great at it. And then the generations that followed them were also good at it, even better at it than they were, and also were very edgy and exciting and interesting. And so you had folks like uh, Kevin DeYoung and Mark Driscoll and David Platt, all these folks who came behind the old guard. And they did the uh, web and social media and digital media better than the old guard, but they also were just more entertaining. Uh, they were edgy. They were certainly anti-gay. Uh, they certainly were uh, very conservative in their politics. And that was something that was always difficult for me. That wasn't how I identified, but they were really good at exegeting the Bible and they were entertaining to listen to. And some of much of what they said, in fact, I would agree with. And so I just enjoyed listening to them. 
certainly since then, many of them have devolved into various forms of scandal or basically just don't have a lot of credibility because of um, in the post Donald Trump world, basically Christians are divided into those who actually had principles and those who threw them out for political power. Uh, but <laughs> that's another podcast episode for another day. But in that movement, they were really good at reaching people, particularly young people and particularly young men of which I was one. And so I listened to them all the time, but I got to a point where their theology just didn't satisfy, where they would get into certain parts of scripture and they would preach it with such certainty, even though it was clear to me that it was not certain, that it was impossible to know really what they were talking about. And so I began to look for other theological perspectives. And the problem was there wasn't much out there. Basically everything was Baptist or Baptist adjacent. It was Calvinist in its theology. And when I went looking for more information about what it was to be a Wesleyan or an Arminian or Methodist or whatever it might be, even Pentecostal, there just wasn't much in the digital media world. There wasn't much uh, in the podcast world or anything like that. And it just became really difficult to figure it out. And so that journey took a long time. I tried different churches out and eventually landed in the United Methodist Church, where I started exploring their theology more in the book sphere than in the digital sphere, because we had no digital presence. Even today in 2023, the United Methodist Church is pretty bad in terms of our digital presence. We're behind uh, the curve for sure. We have a lot of opportunity. What's interesting to me about the failure of the Methodist movement to evangelize is actually that our history is the opposite of the last 50 years. From the beginning of John Wesley's vision for Methodism, uh, Methodism's really been one of the fastest growing denominations in history and certainly in the United States. When the Methodist movement really became what it was in the United States after our independence from Great Britain, uh, the Methodist denomination was the largest uh, denomination in the United States for its first century. And of course, there were different iterations of Methodism. There was an African-American Methodist movement. There was a Pentecostal Methodist movement. There were various uh, expressions of Methodism. But when you put them together, it was by far the largest uh, theological movement in the nation in the 19th century. It was a movement that uh, in part fought against slavery, fought for women's rights, eventually would fight for civil rights. It was a movement that fought for nonviolence, actually opposed uh, a lot of the world intervention, even into World War I and World War II. Uh, Methodism was a big part of the progressive movement in the early 20th century to end child labor, uh, to implement a fair taxation system and financial regulations, certainly also to ban alcohol, which, again, we're not perfect. Uh, but uh, it was a powerful movement and an evangelizing movement. Uh, but something changed in the mid 20th century, and Methodism became controlled mainly by liberal Christianity. Now, it might surprise you to hear me criticize liberal Christianity because I tend to be uh, left-leaning theologically, but I'd like to differentiate between liberal Christianity and progressive Christianity. Liberal Christianity really grew out of the Enlightenment. And I know this is history. I'm sorry. I'll try not to bore you too much. I find it fascinating, but not many people do. 
But after the Enlightenment, there was this big movement to take the supernatural out of Christianity. Folks like Thomas Jefferson would literally edit their Bibles and take out the miracles of Jesus, take out the resurrection, uh, the supernatural events, because they believed that if something wasn't measurable, scientifically measurable, then it wasn't real. And so liberal Christianity came out of this scientific revolution and the Enlightenment and philosophy And it was skeptical of the supernatural, and it looked to explain the Bible from a perspective that basically denied uh, most or all of the supernatural events of the Bible. Progressive Christianity is not that at all. Progressive Christianity is postmodern, and postmodernism is open to the supernatural. It's open to things that are uh, inexplicable, unexplainable, things that may not be uh, easy to describe or definitely can't be measured in a laboratory. And so in that case, I think it's been to the um, detriment of United Methodism that it really got in bed with liberal Christianity. It needs to reclaim its evangelistic roots without reclaiming some of its fundamentalist or legalist tendencies. And so I'd like to see how we could take what's best of Methodism and move forward to be great church planters. So here's some things uh, theologically that will help you tend to good soil. Wesleyan distinctives, things that make us great Methodists. There are four basic distinctives that I think make uh, Methodism really wonderful and actually the best equipped to do evangelism and church planting in the world today. Uh, these four things are, first of all, the the doctrine of the three graces, and we're going to talk about this uh, more, but there's this idea of the three graces of God, which is a lovely Irish thing as well, and I'm very Irish, so I love that. Um, the second thing is faith and good works and how they work together, which is distinctive from how other Christian denominations might describe it. The second or the third distinctive is mission and service. And this is one of the good things that came out of liberal Christianity was a focus on building God's kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. In other words, doing justice and doing mercy ministry. And finally, the last Wesleyan distinctive is the experience of faith. So I'm going to flesh these out, these four different categories to kind of give you a good, uh, a good idea of how Wesleyanism, Methodism can be uh, a power for good in evangelism in the church planting world. So first, let's talk about the three graces. If I asked you uh, how you get saved, uh, you would probably repeat to me something that you heard growing up if you're a Christian. If not, then getting saved may be completely foreign to you. Uh, but essentially, you would say that it's when you placed faith in Christ, uh, you were forgiven of your sin. And you were adopted into God's family. Bada bing, bada boom. And it would sound very uh, singular, one moment in time, very transactional. You prayed the prayer, you got baptized. Some single moment in time that basically was like you walked through a door. You were outside the faith, you walked through the door, now you're inside the faith. Done deal, you're saved, all is good in the world. And that's the typical way that... uh, evangelism is presented in most of Christianity in America. It's the doorway evangelism. It's walk through the door, pray the prayer, uh, dip yourself in the water or have someone do it for you and you're good to go. But Wesleyan theology is not doorway salvation. It's pathway 
salvation. It's about a journey. There's no in or out, really. It's about progress. It's about a spectrum of faith. And so instead of having just one grace, justifying grace, the grace of God that, that saves you in that moment that you might think of, in Methodism, we talk about three kinds of graces. Rather than just focusing on justification or that moment when you pray the prayer, we talk about this pathway of salvation. And so we have the three graces, the Provenient grace, justifying grace, and sanctifying grace. Provenient grace is that grace that goes before us. And you can think of this kind of like, well, there's a way in which God is is gracious to every human being ever born in the history of the world. That might sound kind of strange, but truthfully, uh, every human being is made in the image of God, as we learn in Genesis chapter one. And so there's some mystery about how every one of us as human beings has some DNA, some imprint of God within us. And that alone is a grace of God that's extended to everybody. A distinctive mark of Wesleyanism is that every human being on the planet has the potential uh, to believe in and follow Jesus. That's not true, believe it or not, of every denomination, of every theological perspective. Some people believe that there are those who do not have the potential to receive Christ because of uh, predestination and other kinds of uh, theological worldviews. But certainly in the United Methodist tradition, we believe that everybody has access to God, this provenient grace that uh, goes before us, that enables us to uh, believe in God, but also enables us just to do good in the world, even if we're not a follower of Jesus. Sometimes we look like Jesus, and that's that provenient grace going before us. Then there's the justifying grace. That's the one you're familiar with in American Christianity. The, I prayed the prayer. I got baptized. I professed Christ. That's that moment when you're forgiven of your sin, when uh, God declares you just or righteous or, or good in the eyes of God. And that's kind of a legal framework, a bit of a legal transaction that happens. And then there's the third grace, sanctifying grace. And that's the grace that grows us, that transforms us into the image of Christ, that helps us to look more like love and helps us to love more deeply. And in the Wesleyan tradition, we actually do believe that we can uh, learn to love perfectly before we die. That's a big deal to believe such a thing. And that sanctifying grace basically flows into the second and third distinctives that I'm going to talk about today. So the second one is faith and good works. And this sanctifying grace is a part of this. You see, faith might be considered that justifying grace, that moment when you profess faith in Christ, but it's also sanctifying because you continue to choose to believe in God every day, every hour, every minute, every second. And certainly some of us, uh, most of us, probably all of us, uh, fail to believe in God at different points in our lives. Even after we've professed belief in God, we still often will fall short and we'll question and we will doubt. And that's okay. That's part of being human. But faith is a journey, not a one-time event. So we get up every day and we choose to believe again, and that's that sanctifying grace, that growing grace, that grace that transforms us. And when that happens, 
we start to look and act and certainly to be more like Jesus. So we've got to have faith first, but we also must have those good works because those good works, those doing good in the world activities are the fruit. If you remember the parable about the good soil, those who are growing in the good soil produce fruit. And that fruit is those good works. If you don't have those, then you really have proven that you don't actually believe. The third Wesleyan distinctive similarly is about mission and service. And that really is what those good works are. It's defining those good works. And again, this is one of the uh, good things about 20th century Methodism. Um, really the 20th century Methodism had a lot of problems, but one good thing that it had was this idea of bringing the kingdom of God on earth as it is in heaven, doing justice and doing mercy in the world. And so, so many good things came out of this, basically, uh, so many hospitals. I mean, I think we take for granted that hospitals even exist today, but we only have hospitals because of denominations like the Roman Catholic church and the Methodist church who are instrumental in opening up hospitals. Uh, We only have a medical profession in our country because of Christians in various denominations, including Methodism, who are focused on helping people. And there wasn't like an immediate simple tie to, um, to evangelism there, right? It wasn't like, well, we're going to take out your appendix, but only if you believe in Jesus first, right? Like that wasn't the point. The point was just to do good in the world. And that it's a good thing that came out of Methodism, this mission and service concept. Uh, It came out in being a good citizen in our country. Uh, It comes out in the form of doing justice in the world of fighting for racial justice, for Uh, voting rights, for representation, for all people. And in today's expression of United Methodism, it's a focus on making sure that our LGBTQIA plus brothers and sisters and siblings of uh, non-binary persuasion are, are invited and wanted and welcome and a full part of the Christian community and a full part of the legal system and the culture of our uh, society. And so mission and service is a critical part of what it is to be Methodist. Now, the final distinctive is experience and experience of faith is really, really critical. Um, Here's what's interesting. Wesley, John Wesley, who founded Methodism, he was born in 1703, right? Over 300 years ago. And he really did believe in Jesus Christ really up from birth, basically. I mean, his mother, Susanna, was a fierce woman who raised him to follow Jesus and believe in Jesus. And she was an amazing person. His dad was a, was a priest in the uh, Church of England. And so he really... He had this powerful tradition and he believed and he went to seminary and he became a preacher and he went to America from Great Britain. He went to the colony of Georgia where he was going to preach uh, the gospel to Native Americans. Uh, But he actually says multiple times in his life, looking back, that he went to America to save the Indians, but he asked who was going to save him. Because at the end of the day, for the first 30 years of his life, he believed with his head, but not with his heart. 
He believed in Jesus in his head, but he didn't experience the love of Christ. He didn't experience the the freedom of forgiveness, the the weight that's lifted off of you when you know that everything's going to be okay because God is real and Jesus is good and has saved us. He didn't have that deep knowing, that deep experience of faith. And so because of that, he he basically felt that he wasn't a true Christian. And that caused him to question a lot of his salvation in the first uh, 30 years of his life. It's just amazing. He was actually 35. It was the 24th of May, 1738, when he heard someone read from the uh, introduction to the epistle to the Romans by Martin Luther really nerdy thing, right? But there was something in that moment and in hearing that scripture and uh, that introduction to that scripture that caused him to have an experience of God, no longer just an intellectual assent to who God is, but an actual experience, something that's become famous across history where he says, I felt my heart strangely warmed powerful moment in the history of the church when this man, 35 years old, who's been serving God for uh, all of his adult life, who's even gone uh, across the dangerous Atlantic Ocean in the 18th century, risking his life to preach the gospel to colonists and the Native Americans. And he he realizes at 35 years of age, he's, he's not really in the fullest sense a Christian. And in this moment, he has an experience of faith. His heart is warmed. He actually knows in his gut that God is real, that Jesus loves him, that he's forgiven, and that all shall be well in the history of the world at the culmination, at the end. So experience of faith is a critical distinctive of Methodism. It's not enough to just say you believe in Jesus. You have to sort of be convicted of it on a deep level, and you have to know on a deep level, on a gut level, on a heart level, that God is real. So there's a a fire and a passion in Methodism that just isn't there sometimes in other faith traditions. In my past uh, faith traditions, I found this to be the case, that I was very, very focused on the intellectual exercise. I could uh, list off the scripture, and I could do the Roman road, or I could talk about salvation, but until I'd gone really to hell and back in my life, I'd gone through a divorce, and until I'd really reckoned with what it was that Christ forgave me until I'd had an actual experience in my life that I knew deep in my belly that all would be well, I don't think I was really fully a Christian. John Wesley would say it this way. He would say you could be a, have the heart of a servant or the heart of a child of God. So at first you have the heart of a servant, like you want to do well and you believe in Jesus and you want to do the right thing. And so you're sort of playing Christian That's not to say that you're not uh, beloved, that you're not adopted by God, that you're not a Christian, but you're just really playing the part at that point. But at a certain point, you move from being a servant, having the heart of a servant of God to having the heart of a child of God, where you really get it. 
on a deep level. And it's no longer about playing the part, but it's about being authentically like Jesus. Now you can see when we go through these four distinctives, uh, you can see why uh, Methodism has everything to offer the church planting world, everything to offer evangelism. And if we reclaim those roots, there is no freaking reason why we should not be able to not only grow the United Methodist Church, but make disciples of Jesus Christ, save souls, bring people to a love of Jesus, uh, to a place of forgiveness, radical forgiveness, to a place of doing justice in the world, uh, of loving neighbors, even those who are hard to love, of forgiving family even those who are hard to forgive. There is a powerful theological perspective here that is really the the most powerful way I think we could reach people in the 21st century. And so as part of tending to that good soil, as part of church planting, we have to have that theological basis. I hope you'll just consider the idea that Wesleyan theology is powerful and meaningful and relevant, even in the 21st century, as a means of planting new churches, of reaching new people, and of doing the work of God in the world. Thanks so much for listening. We'll see you next time.